Life Audio. Hey, welcome back to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries. Bill at gospel-app.com. We're on a special series here through 1 Thessalonians. If you followed my first podcast, that super long one, where we looked at uh, the context in, in uh, Achaia and Macedonia, northern Greece and southern Greece now. The idea was, I'm going on a trip, and we're going to walk into Thessalonica and, and Philippi and Athens and Corinth. And so I wanted to get into Paul's head. Since I was doing all the work anyway, I was going back to the Greek and translating, and why not share it with my ranch family? And so that's what we're doing. <clears throat> I hope you enjoy it. If you're new, this is the Gospel Rant. This is not a, a, a carefully quaffed commentary. Uh, it's the basis for it. The work's being done. But it really is the dialogue. I mean, we're at Gospel Rant, we're here to ask questions, to dig deep, to scratch, to throw out questions, maybe questions that I think come from you. We're not going to shame anybody. We're not going to tell you what you should believe. We're not going to tell you what you should be doing. We're just digging into it and let the Holy Spirit do his thing. First Thessalonians is amazing. I mean, I was so I so enjoyed doing the the study. Paul is being personal. His his letter I think is badly edited. I think he's just really speaking from the heart off the cuff. He's repeating himself regularly. He's he's sharing his emotions, his fears. He's talking. He really is uh, coming across like he's learning this stuff. Uh, as he's going along, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that humility. Um, and all the while, he's getting beat up and and rejected, and he's his, showing fears and anxiety and worry. All these things make him very human. I love the letter. I think a young adult audience would appreciate Paul in, in the letter to First Thessalonians. So anyway, the first podcast was Context. We're now going to continue context, look at the second missionary journey in Acts from Troas through Corinth. That'll take us a couple of podcasts, and then we'll actually get into the into the letter, okay? But before we get into that, I want to thank LifeAudio.com for their support and for their provision of sponsors, and we're going to hear from the sponsors now. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. All right, welcome back. It's going to be fun. We're going to quickly go through Acts. Um, you know, I guess you could use this as a Bible study. Uh, there's a lot we can learn. I'm going to be kind of tossing out notes that I found very interesting, thoughts I had very interesting questions that some of the times I don't have answers for. And we'll go through it starting at Acts 16, verse 6. And we're just going to have some fun. All right. 
So imagine you're just walking through Acts and, and uh, here's, here's somebody like me coming in and going, you know, here's, here's my thoughts as I've gone through the study myself. So just sit back and enjoy. The idea, again, is we want to get into Paul and Silas's and Timothy and Luke's head uh, as they're on this ridiculously amazing, shocking, exciting, scary journey. And, and here, particularly Luke, as he's writing this down, okay? Acts 16, 6 and 7. Uh, here's the NIV. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, uh, all of this is modern Turkey, right? They entered into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas, which was on the, uh, the, the, uh, the water. Okay, so they're in modern Turkey. They seem to have wanted to go north further into Asia and to preach the gospel there. But see, and, and this is a theme we're going to pick up. They were actively and submissively dependent upon the guidance of the Spirit. They were. They were bold about it. Luke noted it and wrote it down. Uh, the Spirit didn't let them. And that's exciting to me. I think maybe in modern times we overlook the work of the Spirit. Uh, we talk about Jesus and, and God the Father a lot, and we should. But the ongoing power is through the Holy Spirit in our inner being. Uh, read Ephesians 3, 9, uh, 14 to 21. So there, through Acts, through First Thessalonians and Corinth and, and Ephesus, you're going to see Paul and Luke emphasizing the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I think we can learn from that, okay? Uh, and matter of fact, in the, his letter to Thessalonians, he's going to tell them not to quench the Spirit, whatever that means. All right, so in Troas, we think that's where they hook up with Luke. We don't know how or why. We don't know that much about Luke other than that he's a doctor. Luke just doesn't tell us. Probably people speculate he just wants to stay in the background. He's just, he's the author. It's not his story about him. And so he doesn't say much about himself. So we fill in the gap with speculations. Here we go. So some say he was a convert in Troas of Paul. Others say that he was from Antioch and knew of the missionaries there and was recruited there. We know he was a medical doctor, so perhaps he was working in Troas. Some even suggest he was Titus's brother. Creative. I'm going to suggest that he was commissioned from somewhere, probably Antioch, uh, to document the enormous miraculous rise of the way. And perhaps he had some literary skills. He had education. He, he's got remarkable Greek. So I would suggest that he, a benefactor approached the church or approached him personally, who he names in code Theophilus, but it's probably, I'm thinking, not a name. It actually means God lover. So I'm suggesting that's the benefactor going incognito. But the benefactor wants documentation for the, to answer the question, how does anybody explain the meteoric rise of the way? I, I think that's what Luke was charged to, to write. And so he got on the road, did research, uh, you know, did interviews with the, the apostles, and then got on the road and began to pen gospel and acts. And he got a hands-on feel from the missionary journey with Paul and Silas and Timothy. So he hooks up with them, it appears, in Troas. All right, verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of the man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia to help us. Uh, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready. 
Luke says, at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. There we go. That's the Macedonian call. Um, It's interesting when we speak of this today, and again, I'm trying to get into Paul's head. Today, we tend to overemphasize that this was the first missionary journey to Europe. And by the way, it's true and it's exciting, but that's from our modern maps. For them, it was a journey into another Roman province that was largely unaware of Jesus. That's the point. Um, They were going from one Roman province to another, but the suspicion is that, you know, nobody had heard. That seems to be Paul's heart. All right, verse 11. From Troas, right on the coast, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, which, by the way, my note is the home of the Kabiris cult. More on that. And the next day to Neapolis, which is the port city that leads inland to the city of Philippi. Um, Philippi was on the massive Ignatian Way. I've said that in the first podcast, a superhighway that crossed Macedonia so that armies from Rome could, could travel from Rome to Byzantium, trade, merchants, philosophers, teachers, anybody. It's Rome, Pax Romana. You could, you could travel from Rome to Byzantium in 21 days where it used to take three months longer in the winter. The road, uh, the Romans did this so well. It cut through the Balkan mountain range, this huge mountain range that runs north-south. So historically, it's difficult in the winter to, to, to go through there, east-west, right? Um, okay, and so the voyage from um, Troas to Neapolis would have taken two days in that direction because of prevailing winds, five days in, in the other direction. Philippi then was about a day's journey uh, from Neapolis, a walk, and that's today's Kavala. Verse 12, from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. So a Roman colony, I'd said a little bit about that in the first podcast. This is the place where the Battle of Philippi was fought some 90 years earlier when the Republic forces under Mark Antony and Octavian defeated the assassins of Julius Caesar, Brutus, and Cassius. And we'll see that Thessalonica supported the winning side, but not so much Philippi. (laughs) So Philippi was not a free city, meaning that they paid taxes, they hosted uh, Roman cohorts, they did not politically run themselves, there was no politarch here, Paul's Roman citizenship was very important. And so if you imagine Philippi, a smaller city, less authority, uh, loaded with military active and retired. All right, verse 13, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, which is in Asia, who was a worshiper of God, a God-fearer. The Lord opened up her heart to respond to Paul's message. Again, you see the action of the Lord being highlighted by Luke, the Lord, did something inside of her, and it caused her to respond to Paul's message. And it was obvious. Again, we're going to see this more and more. This is Paul's headspace, is that he's doing this, but he's looking for signs that the Spirit is working. And the signs, the, the signs look like joy and gratefulness and hospitality, typically. So what do we know about Philippi? It wasn't large enough. It didn't have a large enough Jewish community to have a synagogue. You need 10 qualified men. Uh, so they found Jews and God-fearer women who went to pray to Yahweh. 
And in this particular case, it was it was it was women. Uh, this is again something we're noticing in uh, in the Achaia journey and in the Macedonian journey is the prevalence of women in the church. Let me say this. I'm going to say it again and again and again. I mean, today there is a caricature of the church that it's it's misogynistic and patriarchal, and maybe we are uh, probably the wrong one to, to comment on it. But back then, you can't say that about the church. They were wildly honoring in that culture. They were honoring of women. They pursued women. Women found the church very attractive. Found the message of Jesus very attractive and not off-putting. Are you with me? So here's Paul walking down, Paul and Silas walking down to a river, and they're not butting in. They're not claiming authority as a male. They're they're dialoguing with these women, and, and the Holy Spirit does his work in the same way that he works within a man. Uh, there's a lot of egalitarian stuff going on in this journey. Just pointing that out here, something for us to take note of. Uh, something's changed between then and, and now, and we can fix it, okay? Um, so... Um, Paul couldn't find a synagogue. Typically, his practice was speaking in the synagogue. So instead, he finds this informal gathering, probably word of mouth. Um, And one lady of import, again, a lady, Lydia, um, she was from Thyatira in Western Turkey. And that's where these purple cloth uh, really is is sourced. So she's either starting a production business here that wasn't there before, pretty pretty impressive, or she's importing and selling cloth from Asia Minor. Either way, very uh, impressive. And she probably becomes a benefactor. Remember, we talked about benefactor. Um, Paul and the way, the movement, probably became a client of Lydia. She became a supporter, but also more than a supporter, as we'll see. Once again, Luke portrays these women as important enough to mention and even highlight. Just saying, the first convert in the new province was a woman. By the way, maybe a widow. That's that's fascinating to think about. We don't hear about her husband, maybe divorced in that culture. Again, uh, women could divorce their husband. All right, verse 15. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. One of the signs of the coming of the Spirit Per Luke and Paul is is this new hospitality towards others. I mean, everybody does it, but I'm saying it's a sign of the Holy Spirit as well. And I think Luke is writing this to say, see, she has been changed. That That's what I'm suggesting. Verse 16, once when we were going to the place of prayer, right, that's probably that river northwest of town, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. So we're told she has a python spirit. Um, okay, so could be related to the temple of Delphi. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul can see the, the lower plains of Achaia and, and the, where the temple of Delphi was. That's where the Pythia, the Pythia lived. She was this a young girl who spoke, who was a soothsayer. She had a soothsaying spirit, a demon uh, in, in her. Um, so was this young girl that Paul and Silas ran into, was she related to the temple somehow? Probably not. Probably means that she had a similar soothsaying spirit or demon in her. And from Luke's point of view, Paul's point of view, Silas's point of view, real. Uh, this Don't think Carney here. She apparently has a demonic spirit. Her owners, her, her slaveholders, they 
own her, they abuse her, they dishonor her, they manipulate her, uh, they make money off of her, right? This is hardened uh, dishonoring of other people. Are you with me? Uh, Again, I'm using that language because Paul uses that language. She is enslaved and used for their profit. It's horrible. It's horrible. So somehow she and Paul cross path. And I think that's how we should see the Via Ignatia as they're walking to this place of prayer. It was just a busy highway. And they would have seen many travelers that they were hoping to reach with the gospel on that Roman roadway. Okay. Verse 17, this girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. See, often the demonic spirits, Jesus had the same issue where they recognized him as the Son of God and the Savior. Sometimes the, the demon spirits actually tell the truth. I mean, how do you know? But in this case, they're actually telling the truth. It wasn't that, that she was, that the demon spirits were lying that got uh, Paul upset. Verse 18, she kept this up for many days. I mean, Paul is showing great perseverance and patience. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, I imagine within this crowd traveling on the journey and is gathering a crowd because that's what she did. And the owners are making hay off of this, making money off of this. They're passing, passing a hat around, I think a street entertainer. And so Paul turns around, crowd circles around, and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, who probably these people had never heard of, I command you to come out of her. He is commanding a spirit to come out of this poor and poor girl, and immediately at that moment, the spirit left her. That's, that's a show. That's a show, baby. I mean, imagine the crowd, the, the eyebrows going up, the, the, maybe the silence as people are just stunned because they probably would have been familiar with this lady. Maybe they had just given money to her handlers. And all of a sudden, she calmed down, her face uh, changed, and she breathed. Her, she, she, she was back to being just a normal young girl. By the way, another woman highlighted. I'm just saying. Um, just saying. Verse 19, when the owners of the slave girl, see, this didn't go down well. When they realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. So imagine a number of these folks. I mean, she was a money-making proposition. Um, This was a a big company. And they dragged them into the marketplace, probably a big, long ways. They dragged them to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews. That's not going to be good. And that day and place. I mean, the Jews had been kicked out of Rome just recently before that. Uh, so to be a Jew was to be, be uh, caricatured as a troublemaker, stirring up riots and, and hostilities and breaking the Pax Romana. And, and they say, and, and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And by the way, ironical, if you followed the first podcast, some of the customs that were considered lawful by Romans are really detestable in so many ways, dishonoring, uh, p- pedestry, for instance, okay? Well, the magistrates of a Greek colony like Philippi were civilian magistrates who were to administer Roman law in a city or region. Sometimes they were called archons or conetes, plural. Other times, strategos. We see both of those Greek words mentioned in this section. You know, Uh, No discernible difference between those two designations. Their goal was, their ultimate goal was to keep the peace. You apply the law, but 
the key thing is you don't want any disruption that would bring the attention of Rome. Remember, there are soldiers around. You don't want Rome's excuse to come in and establish the peace. <laughs> you just don't. So you do what you can. So again, we'll see this the rest of Achaia and Macedonia. The worst possible thing you can do is to disrupt. So the slave owners, businessmen, man, they're good at this. They had their arguments. They knew what to say. It was finally honed. I think this is hilarious, by the way. I mean, uh, think think of an alternative prosecution. What could the charges be? We want to sue this man because he cast a demon out of this woman, this slave, and she lost her power. <laughs> I mean, really? How do you how do you figure out those losses? How do, what accountant would you would you hire? How do you deal with with that? So they don't go that direction. Smart. They take a different tack. These are Jews, right? Outsiders, important, who are causing a disruption, causing our city into an uproar, which is ectarasso. They're agitating. They're causing riots. Not true, by the way, but there you go. Um, this strategy will work in Thessalonica. This strategy will work in Berea. Just saying. Then they, then the, the argument goes on. They added that they're undermining the authority of Rome. That's scary. But by the way, I think that's ultimately closer to the truth. Not directly, but, but indirectly. So that's the charge against them. Somehow they got the crowd to join into the attack against Paul and Silas. Look, these were businessmen. Maybe they passed a few coins out. Maybe they, I mean, who knows? Um, But uh, they knew how to work up a crowd. That was their business. That's what they did. Okay. And the magistrates ordered Paul and Silas to be stripped and beaten. I'll talk more about that. After they had been severely flogged, that's really not the right word. It's actually beaten. They were thrown into prison. The jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell, fastened their feet in the stocks. All right, so the crowd got worked up, mob violence. The magistrates knew that their job and livelihood and maybe lives were up for grabs. They had to stop, quell this this mob violence. Uh, So how do you do that? Well, the easiest way out was to have the prisoners beat. Sounds like Jesus, right? Uh, crucify him, crucify him. So, the, so the businessmen were the actual professional agitators, but uh, you know, nobody had Paul and Silas's back to make that charge, countercharge. Um, and and here, Paul and Silas did not seem to enjoy protection. Yet, I'm going to make an exception. They did not seem to have protection from a benefactor. We talked about the benefactors in the first podcast. There was no synagogue, so nobody had their back. They, Paul and Silas, Timothy is not mentioned. Paul and Silas were pretty much alone. They were beaten with rods. So don't think flag, uh, flagellation, you know, the 40 lashes, less one. The word is rabditso. It means really to hit with long, stiff sticks. So a, a stick or a branch. So imagine a strong Roman soldier delivering a whipping, this man who was trained, probably really good and knew how to mostly intense, who, who, to deliver and inflict pain. Okay? All right. I want to take a break for sponsors and we'll be right back. You know, as I thought about it before the break, I probably shouldn't have stopped there. We left them sort of hanging in the stocks. Um, this was a painful, painful, painful thing for Paul. I mean, they broke skin. They these they would have hurt dearly. They would have been in shock, in pain, bloody. 
So here's the question. Couldn't Paul have said that he was a Roman citizen to avoid flogging? Yeah. Um, that's an open question. Maybe he did, by the way, some people say, and he wasn't hurt over the crowd. I find that hard to believe. Maybe he was unwilling to let uh, Silas get whipped alone. Maybe he was waiting for the spirit to tell him. I don't know, but he uh, doesn't appear t- that they said anything. Uh, again, a mystery. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Okay. Uh, you know, so Allah chosen, let me see if I can set this scene. They're thrown into prison. They're in stocks, which uh, one way or the other causes them to be, their legs to be locked into these bars. They couldn't move. They were tossed in this nasty, nasty place. Okay. That's where my imagination goes. Um, the shock starts to wear off. The pain goes up. Blood everywhere. They're, they're, you know, I imagine them feeling abused, feeling ashamed, because this pub- public flogging in an honor-shame culture, which Paul was part of, shaming. Shame the movement. I mean, you can imagine what Paul is thinking. I've, I've totally screwed this up. Paul's going to admit as much to the letter to the Thessalonians that he was shamed. Maybe he's angry at himself for not saying that they were Romans. Maybe they were afraid of this falling apart, the missionary journey. Maybe they were angry at God letting them letting them down. Maybe they were wondering where their benefactors, Lydia, was, right? Maybe they were feeling hatred for for the business people, for the young girl. Maybe they were they were just immersed in feelings of injustice. I mean, who would blame them? I, I would. Uh, and by the way, physical pain. Open wounds on naked bodies, tossed in a dark, nasty cell uh, with this thick, with aroma of dried blood and urine and sweat. Were they questioning their call? Did they get the Macedonian thing right? Did they go to the wrong city? Were they questioning their approach, their theology? I mean, they looked around at the others in the jail and thought, what in the world have we gotten ourselves into? I mean, here we are showing weakness, not strength. Um, and and again, fear, because they weren't, it's not clear what the end charges would be. I mean, they could be beat again. They could be set free. They could be kept in jail. They could be made galley slaves out of Kavala. They had no idea. Faith. And here's how I imagine it. Again, uh, chosen style. Then maybe uh, something happened. Remember the emphasis on the spirit? So they were grousing. They were spewing. They were complaining a bit. They felt sorry a bit. They were likely being mocked by the others, uh, but then the Spirit, then the Spirit. I imagine Paul or Silas in this huge pain <laughs> just begin to hum a familiar psalm that they both knew, you know, and they laughed, they chuckled, they looked at each other, and they hummed together, and then one of them kind of broke into, into song, and it got louder and louder until they were both singing. I mean, I almost picture it. I mean, this is irreverent, but almost kind of like a drinking song, you know, and they were filled with joy. That's the, that's the miracle. And their voices drowned out the din. Evidence of the Spirit. That's the point. That's what Luke seems to be doing. And Paul, they're very clear about the role of the Spirit and, and what he can do, particularly, and this will be emphasized in Thessalonians, Joy and persecution as a sign of being a Jesus follower. And by the way, that mirrors what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are you who are persecuted. It just doesn't make sense unless there's a power that makes that happen. I don't imagine this being 
Paul and Silas faking it till you make it. I think this was real. All right, uh, let me read an extended passage here, 26 to 34. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Talk about an honor-shame culture. Instead of facing shame and his family facing shame uh, and the abuse and the beating, he thought, uh, you know, I'm just going to kill myself. Obviously, a, a soldier, because he had a sword, pulled his sword, and he was going to do the honorable thing in an honor-shame culture. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. I mean, he was in shock personally, but something else was happening, as we'll see. He then brought them out and said, sirs, honor. See, hear that, sirs? The honor that he's treating them? I bet he didn't call them sirs when he threw them in the tank. What must I do to be saved? See, my question would be, what did he mean by saved? Was he talking about saved from shame, from dishonor? Was he talking about... See, see, I wonder. That's an interesting question for an unbelieving uh, Gentile pagan to ask. Um, so no matter what he meant, Paul focused on the right answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus, who the jailer had probably never heard of, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. So all of this had to be unpacked, right? Uh, I'm sure the jailer went, what? No, what are you talking about? I, I mean, to, to not be shamed. And Paul's going, oh, your problem is worse than that. Let me tell you about God. Let me tell you about the creator. Let me tell you about Jesus and honor in the midst of shame. So they spoke, verse 32, the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that honor, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his families were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. Again, Remember I said the sign of the Spirit was joy and hospitality? Here we go. The jailer brought them into his house. Remarkable. Set a meal before them. You know, before, he would never have done that. It would have been shameful to identify with these people. But now, something's changed. And Luke says he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Sign of the Spirit. Joy. And, and again, we're going to see that this is the, one of the noted pieces of evidence of true spiritual conversion. We've all experienced it once, right? Maybe we haven't experienced it for a long time, but we've experienced this once. And this joy is evident twice in the story, with Paul and Silas in prison, very unlikely, and then the jailer outside of his prison. Again, unlikely, and both times joy. Um I think that's overshadowed by discussion and debate over the mechanisms of baptism here. So how is he saved? What, what about confession of sin? It's not mentioned. Uh, did the family get ushered in under his conversion, or did they too believe, or did they too have to believe and repent? So, all right, let's have that discussion. I love it, by the way. I, I love theology, but I don't think that was Luke's point. And Luke's telling the story. We're getting into Luke's head, right? Something powerful happened here. This is the thing of note. Don't bury the headline. Something that shouldn't have happened, happened. Paul seems to be teaching that all you do to believe, whatever that meant to the jailer in his culture, they, they need to believe in the Lord Jesus. He unpacks that. We don't know what he said, but we have a good idea because we have Paul's theology. And then an entire family was saved. Again, a sign of conversion, which is Luke's import, is that they agreed to be publicly baptized, again, in an honor-shame culture, 
right? You're, you're, you're messing with your reputation and were then filled with joy. The sign, one of the key signs of the coming of the Spirit. So we like to focus on baptism, but I'm suggesting that Luke and Paul focus on hospitality and joy, right? Um, and, and we see the hospitality, how they treated Paul and Silas with honor, sirs, and hospitality. It was immediate, not the typical way that prisoners were treated uh, in Philippi. That makes sense. We can talk more about it. Uh, by the way, push back, bill at gospel-app.com. Verse 35, when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, meaning they shamed us, even though we were Roman citizens. Whoops, new information, and threw us into prison. Can't do that uh, with, without appropriate trial. And, and now they want to get rid of us quietly? Uh-uh, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. Matter of fact, uh, the word is phobia. They were afraid. They were shaken in their Roman boots because what happened was against Roman law. The magistrates are now liable legally and politically, and matter of fact, could even lose their lives. They could be in the prison next. Paul could easily appeal this wrong to a higher court, and they would definitely be found, um, the, the magistrates would be found guilty. Roman citizens couldn't be flogged apart from a legit trial and defense and being found guilty of official charges, which did not happen here. Now, you know, was this Paul's plan all along? I, I don't think so. I, I don't understand what happened, but Paul made them restore honor to him, to Silas, and ultimately to the movement, right? The movement had been dishonored, shown weak in a Roman society, in a, in a Roman patriarchal, virile society. But now that flipped on its head because now uh, the, the Roman magistrates were honoring Paul, Silas, and the way, okay? Uh, verse 39, they came to appease them, escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them, then they left. To appease is parakaleo, one of Paul's go-to words in the Thessalonians. It means to encourage, exhort, and maybe in context, appease, I guess. Lydia, you know, must have been something. She had a house large enough for the converts to meet. Uh, by the way, I imagine, you know, again, Allah chosen, I imagine the jailer's family at the party. Uh, that's how I would write it. Um, I would add them. And, and I wonder, just speculation, if Lydia was actually their benefactor who actually got them released on the, on the first day, right? There, there's no explanation given. Luke doesn't. But I, but I wonder, okay? Maybe. All right. That's enough for now. We'll pick this up on the next podcast and our third podcast through uh, our walk through First Thessalonians. All right. Again, check out lifeaudio.com for other podcasts. Until we see you next time, take heart child of God. It's a crazy world out there, moms and dads. I'm Katherine Seegers, host of Christian Parent Crazy World, the podcast that tackles tough topics to help you be a godly parent in an ungodly world. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com.